Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world. Today, wake in fright. One of our go-to enforcement experts, Tanya McDonald, joins us to talk about dawn raids and cartel investigations. A key part of managing a raid effectively is not just your engagement with the ACCC, but also managing staff and how they react and making sure that they know what their obligations are. Obviously, I think it will be alarming and it is a confronting experience, but you want people to understand that it is possible that a raid might occur and, and what to do. But first, Matt, what's been happening around the grounds? Well, we have a new government here in Australia uh, with a slightly more progressive Labour Party scoring a big win over the slightly more conservative Liberal National Coalition after three election cycles in opposition. And that could have some serious consequences for competition law in Australia. But I don't remember it being much of an election issue, though. No, it wasn't really, was it? The last government's election platform included online safety and privacy, as well as strengthening protections against unfair contract terms and breaches of the franchising code. In fairness, I guess the last nine years have seen quite a bit of action in competition and consumer law and regulation in Australia, including the Harper Review, the Digital Platforms Inquiry, the News Media Bargaining Code, and the Consumer Data Right. And what about the new government? So Labor has also promised to make unfair contract terms illegal and to introduce what they call super complaints, which consumer groups could make on behalf of consumers, and the ACCC would have to consider those and respond to them. But they're also proposing to increase maximum penalties for competition law breaches from $10 million to $50 million. But we're already seeing penalties well over $10 million, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And that's because the maximum penalty at the moment is actually the greater of $10 million, or three times the benefit of the conduct. Or if you can't work that out, and you usually can't, it's 10% of your annual Australian turnover. So that last part is the real maximum if you're a big business, isn't it? It's the max max. That's exactly right. And interestingly, before the last election, Labor made all the same promises it's made this time around, except that back then, they said the penalty would be the greater of $50 million or 30% of turnover related to the infringement for every year of the infringement. And I do wonder if all that was just too complicated for the press release, but they're still looking to make that further change as well. I mean, they wouldn't really be increasing the maximum penalty if that's all there was to it. They'd be increasing the minimum maximum, but reducing the maximum maximum if you know what I mean. Uh, That's right, I think. Um, So last time, a lot of the policy was driven by the Shadow Minister for Competition and Productivity, Dr. Andrew Lee. After they lost the election, he was moved off the Shadow front bench, apparently due to some factional shenanigans. Oh, really? Who'd have thought? (laughs) And actually, there was nobody officially responsible for competition policy in government or opposition for that whole term. Hmm. Dr. Lee has just been announced as Assistant Minister for Competition, as well as Treasury and Charities. So he's still outside cabinet, but he's got competition in his title again. And he's probably going to be quite active, I think. He's written tons of books, and for years, he's argued against concentration and in favour of equality as a concern in competition policy. So he's a hipster. A bit of a one. And he may well be in support of the changes to the merger process that we've talked about, and perhaps even a prohibition of unfair practices. Of course, the new treasurer and the new prime minister will have their own views as well. Well, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when they meet with the ACCC chairs. I'm sure they will at some point. But other big news is Michelle Rowland, who worked here at Gilbert and Tobin for quite a long time, is the new communications minister. That's right. The Honourable Michelle has been returned as the member for Greenway, with a big swing in her favour, actually. She's been in that seat since 2010, and she's been the Shadow Minister for Communication since 2016. I remember she gave a great first speech in Parliament about her family and growing up in the area, as well as her time here at G&T, working with Gina Cascott-Lieb and Peter Waters. She was always a big supporter of the original plan for the NBN, which would connect almost every home and business to optical fibre. 
and she was pretty scathing about the coalition government's downgrade to rely more on existing copper connections. She was, and the last government did commit to hooking up more places with fibre, and Labor's promise to speed up that process, so we may get there in the end, we'll see. But for our competition and regulatory purposes, the most exciting thing about the NBN is that the ACCC is consulting on a proposed variation to the special access undertaking. And that's where the NBN sets out the key price and other terms of access to the wholesale network for retail providers to use. Those wholesale prices have always been a bit complicated, haven't they? With connection charges plus capacity charges, minus any discounts that the NBN uses when it wants to promote a particular service from time to time. Yeah, and that makes it pretty hard to set a retail price, which has to be a lot simpler, of course, and still be sure that you'll break even every month. The OCCC is quite concerned about the undertaking that's been proposed so far. It still has all those complicated elements, and they're projecting it'll increase costs for most of the speed tiers quite quickly. The NBN also wants to change the formula for its weighted average cost of capital, and the OCCC has some pretty searching questions about that too. Mm, So much comes back to the whack. (laughs) It always does. At the same time, the NBN says it needs more certainty because it's facing more competition, particularly from the 4G and 5G wireless services that the mobile carriers are offering now and really marketing as an alternative to the NBN. Well, that was always going to be a possibility, but this is all getting very complicated now. Is there a way you can sum it up in a couple of lines a bit more poetically? Uh, I guess we could say that uh, as they tic-tac on the whack, 5G on a phone might beat fibre to the home. Oh, boom, you win the internet. (laughs) What else is going on? Well, when the ACCC announced its priorities earlier in the year, it said it's looking at payment systems in particular, and it mentioned least cost routing, which is a recent initiative of the Reserve Bank that lets retailers choose whether debit card payments are routed through the international card schemes, that is Visa and MasterCard, or through the domestic FPOS network, which is often cheaper for the retailer and in the end for customers as well. This comes up because most bank cards in Australia are dual network cards, aren't they? They are designed to access FPOS and also either Visa or MasterCard. Yeah, and so if you put your card in a payment terminal, you get to choose which way the payment is going to go. But if you just tap it, like most of us do these days, you don't get that additional step of choosing anything. It all just depends on the way the terminal's been set up. And the ACCC has just taken MasterCard to court saying that it made arrangements with more than 20 of the biggest retail chains that gave them discounted rates on MasterCard credit card transactions, as long as they routed most or all of their debit card transactions through MasterCard and not through FPOS. And what about Visa? Did they have similar arrangements with retailers? They did, but in 2021, Visa gave an enforceable undertaking to the ACCC that they wouldn't link their credit card rates to debit card payments anymore. And it's not clear why MasterCard didn't give the same kind of undertaking, But anyway, the ACCC have now thrown the book at them. They're alleging misuse of market power, exclusive dealing and contracts, arrangements or understandings that substantially lessen competition, the whole lot. So this might be the first real test of those new or maybe not so new misuse of market power provisions. Yeah, I'd say so. There was the Tasports case that settled without penalties, but this one has a good chance of making the distance, I reckon. The ACCC says that MasterCard has substantial market power in the market for credit card services and that it leveraged that power for the purpose of reducing or avoiding competition in the separate market for debit card services. So after all this chit-chat about an effects test, this is actually still a purpose case? It is a purpose case. I mean, the, the court can look at the effect or the likely effect of the conduct when it's working out what MasterCard's purpose was, but the ACCC won't have to prove any effect. And it also won't have to prove that MasterCard had actually used its market power in any way, thanks to the new Section 46, only that it had market power and a substantial purpose of lessening competition. Mm. Let's move on to this week's deep dive. 
Well, last time we spoke about some dawn raids on wineries and distilleries in France, didn't we? Though I'd imagine dawn raids probably happen at about 10 o'clock in the morning, maybe at the earliest over there. Anyway, today we're talking to Tanya MacDonald about dawn raids and cartel enforcement in Australia and also in South Africa, which also has some pretty decent winemaking regions. Is that a coincidence? Well, look, it's definitely worth an international fact-finding mission. Dawn raids are probably the most dramatic aspect of a cartel investigation. Uh, You might remember the newspaper pictures of ACCC agents coming out of the Caltex offices in Sydney a few years ago, holding armfuls of cardboard boxes that a lot of people agreed were probably all empty. But regulators are actually more likely to use their other powers if they have them, like the power the ACCC has to demand documents or information from witnesses. And if you're lucky, you'll find out you've got a cartel problem before the regulator does, right? That's right. And especially if you've got a good compliance program, which a lot of businesses now have. And they can really help people know what to look out for and also give them a chance to ask about anything they might have seen or anything that might be worrying them. And that way you can get ahead of the game and maybe take advantage of the ACCC's immunity and cooperation policies. That's where if you're the first one to report a possible cartel to the ACCC, you can avoid liability. You can. And those really work, as you'd imagine, by changing that risk equation over whether to go along with the cartel or blow the whistle on the others before they do it to you. And if you leave it too late, that's when you might find yourself at the wrong end of a raid. I was sort of in a raid when FIFA's hotel got an early morning visit one time. But anyway, that wasn't a competition law raid. And I've watched Raiders of the Lost Ark a lot of times. Oh, that sounds relevant. Uh, Well, let's hear from Tanya McDonald, shall we, who's got even more experience than we do. Let's take a listen. I'm talking today with one of our experts on cartel investigations, including Dawn Raids. Tanya has had lots of adventures with investigations and raids in South Africa, including the first cartel case that was ever prosecuted there. And she's also had plenty of experience since joining us here in Australia at Gilbert and Tobin over five years ago. Welcome, Tanya McDonald. Thanks very much, Moya. So I guess there are a few different ways a company can first become aware that it's got a competition problem, but how it finds out can make a big difference to what happens next, right? Ideally, it'll find out through its own internal processes and it can get on the front foot. But sometimes the first thing you know is when there's a knock on the door from a regulator and a dawn raid happens or there's a letter in your mailbox asking for more information, although that might depend on the investigation options your regulator happens to have. That's right, Moya. The ACCC tends to use its statutory powers to get information and documents more frequently than their dawn raids, and I think that's been a trend over time. In South Africa, the commission there doesn't have those equivalent powers under the legislation to issue notices to produce documents and and get people to appear, so they do send voluntary information requests, but they don't have those statutory powers to compile. So that has led to the commission executing a number of dawn raids in any given year. A number of cartel investigations have arisen as a result of dawn raids. Immunity applications are also very common there, and the corporate leniency policy has been similarly very effective. But we have seen, particularly in the last six to seven years, a number of dawn raids being executed. How many have you been involved with? I was involved in about seven or eight dawn raids. And actually quite a short space of time. The commission hadn't done a dawn raid for a while and and suddenly we experienced quite a spate of them. We actually used to joke because they're always conducted on a Thursday that all the women in the office used to wear flat shoes because we knew that on a Thursday there was a good chance that a dawn raid might happen. And you, you definitely don't want to be stuck in an office observing and responding to a dawn raid in uncomfortable shoes. So 
yeah, that was my experience. It was it was very interesting. We learned quite a lot in assisting clients and how to respond effectively, particularly in a way that mitigates the impact on the business, allows the rate to run very efficiently, but also makes sure that our clients' rights are protected and that the, the commission executes the warrants in a way that's within the scope of its powers and the scope of the warrants. So you were the one on speed dial when somebody arrived either politely at reception or, or less politely in South Africa. That's right. So you would just receive a call from a client saying the commission is here. You would scramble to get a team together. We actually drew on resources from across the firm because you generally want to arrive if you're going to respond with a team that matches the size of the commission's team, just so that you have one person available to shadow each of the commission officials. We put in a lot of time and effort to make sure that our people and our our juniors across the firm were trained in, in what they had to do to respond. And also to make sure that our clients were prepared because as uncommon as dawn raids are, there are some steps that you can take that really make the experience, which is not a nice experience for anyone, regardless of how prepared you are, that can make it a lot easier and a lot easier to manage when people know what to do and who to call. We'll come back to the preparation because that's a really important point. But did they always happen at dawn? And why did they happen on a Thursday? I must admit more, I can't answer the Thursday question. These raids can run for some time, so often for sort of up to 24 hours, actually, maybe a bit less. So I think the thought of doing that into the early hours of a Saturday morning was unappealing. And to be honest, we didn't complain about that much. They don't always happen at dawn, but we tended to find that they did start quite early in the morning. They started not at dawn because the commission wanted people at the premises there to let them in when they arrive. And you want the relevant people there to give you access to IT systems. But they did start in the morning because the warrant only subsists for a certain period of time. and You want to maximize that. You've gathered some stats on this for the last few years as to where the ACCC has actually exercised their powers. Do you want to run us through what you found there? It's, it's actually really interesting. I suppose a bit unsurprisingly, there were no dawn raids conducted in the year 2020-2021. That's kind of aligned with what we've seen globally, although in the second half of 2021, Europe picked up again, which I'll get into in a minute. But I think that's probably just a reflection of COVID. There have been a kind of an increased trend in the number of warrants that have been issued over the years, but the numbers are still very low. So even in 2019, 2020, there were only 15 warrants issued and only relating to four specific cartel investigations. When you compare that to the quite high number of Section 155 notices that was issued in the 2020-2021 year, you can see the ACCC is obviously a lot more inclined to issue a Section 155 notice. So they issued 379 in that year. I think that makes sense, you know, for a number of reasons. Obviously, a raid is, is a lot more resource and time intensive. There's still the COVID impact, but I think even prior to COVID, that's probably not a surprising statistic. Interestingly, the number of Section 155 notices that have been issued over the years has remained pretty stable, actually, I think, over recent years. Although we have seen an increase in the volume of the actual information and documents that have been requested under those notices. So I think it will be interesting to see in a sort of post-COVID world what will happen in relation to the comparison between the number of warrants issued and dawn raids executed versus Section 155 notices. It would be interesting in the working from home era, too. I mean... Imagine showing up at the office and like there's nobody there. Exactly. I think it's almost a bit of a balance, actually. I mean, you, you need someone there, obviously, to let you in. But in terms of the actual people there who, who sort of devices you might want to search or, you know, whose offices you might want to go through, I think the new sort of hybrid environment that we're moving towards will definitely play a role. 
On the other hand, though, with a lot of information sitting in the cloud or sitting on controlled centralized servers, it might not actually make that much of a material difference. As you would imagine, there's less seizure of hard copy documents and more interest in the electronic copy documents. Mm. But they could just use 155 for that, could they not? Exactly. You know, it makes sense because the documents that the ACCC will get from a response to a Section 155 notice are already targeted, have already had search terms applied. From a resources perspective, it actually makes a lot of sense. Interestingly, though, in Europe, we've seen in the second half of 2021, the European Commission actually in 2020, I think, only executed 24 dawn raids. In the second half of 2021, went up to actually 40 with the easing of COVID restrictions. So at least globally, we are seeing dawn rates on the increase again. And it'll be interesting to see whether that trend continues in Australia. I think also, though, there's something to be said about increased use of dawn raids in countries where, where authorities might not have as effective powers as they do here with the ability to issue Section 155 notices. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in a post-COVID environment. So, in fact, they could be substitutes more than their complements. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Um, So does this tell us anything about the way the ACCC is approaching cartel investigations more generally? I think it's quite difficult sometimes to see from the stats just because there is always obviously a lag between investigations and, and enforcement. So, you know, the most recent stats that we're seeing, it's not clear to us which cartels or which enforcement actions those potentially relate to. The other thing is also, obviously, we're in quite a unique set of circumstances here with COVID where there have been fewer dawn raids and also the ACCC, I think, has been a lot more understanding in terms of the scope of Section 155s and timing for response and things like that. That's not to say that they haven't issued a large number. We've seen that they have. But I I, I do think that we do need to bear the impact of COVID in mind. But I suppose just a couple of observations from that. I think the first one is just how effective the ACCC Section 155 powers are. They do tend to get a lot of the information, I think, that they need from those Section 155 notices. They're obviously compulsory notices. People, you know, go to a lot of time, effort and costs to comply and to produce a set of targeted documents that meets the requirements. So I think that's one observation. A second observation might also be that the action action that the ACCC is taking against cartels at the moment it's not the sort of most obvious and, and big cartels like we used to seeing in the past. I think the trend that we're seeing is that they are more focused on smaller businesses. So if you look, for example, at the, the Vena money transfer matter, the country care matter, and then also investigations that are more technical. The ANZ share issue, that, that matter is not proceeding anymore, but the ACCC was prepared to take that and that was an enforcement matter that they, that they did decide to proceed with. And two of those three matters that you've mentioned ended badly for the ACCC, right? Exactly. So so there may also be a sort of refocus on the types of matters that they are actually willing to take all the way. Mm. Could it be that there's just better compliance, that, you know, there just aren't the big bad cartels out there that perhaps there used to be? I think that's a really good point, actually. And I think, you know, there's obviously a significant increased awareness over the last couple of years of what you should and shouldn't be doing. They're, you know, all businesses, I think, you know, particularly large corporates, but I think also filtering down now into the smaller businesses, you know, we're seeing an increase in businesses of all sizes coming to us for advice, coming to us looking for competition law protocols or competition law compliance programs, looking for training sessions. 
I think that awareness has driven an increase in compliance. And I definitely think that that means that there's probably a reduction in a lot of the low hanging fruits that the ACCC did have potentially to both investigate and then enforce against. So perhaps the country care case and the ANZ share issue case did have some positive impacts, but although not in the way that the ACCC might have intended. Exactly. And, and I think enforcement has an important, obviously, deterrence as well, not just for the parties involved, but also for the sort of broader business community. And it might be the numbers that we're seeing is a reflection of that. I think it also could be the case that the ACCC sees drawn rates as, as something that are, are not just useful for actually gathering the information. They, they might see that Section 155 notices are actually more effective in, in the information gathering, but they are also a prompt to those businesses involved that there's something there that the ACCC is aware of. And to the extent that they don't already have an immunity application, it might drive them to, to consider whether that's something that they, they should be thinking about. So where now for Dawn Raids? Do you think they're just a tool in the back of the toolbox that's going to be pulled out occasionally just to remind everybody? that, you know, things can end dramatically and badly for you if you're not compliant? In fact, not end, begin really. Or are they going to fall into disuse? I don't think we'll ever see no dawn raids. I I think the ACCC has already been and will continue to be quite considered on when they're appropriate to use. I think in situations potentially where they're not getting the other information that they want by other means, or potentially where the companies that they actually are raiding are potentially less sophisticated than a big corporate who, you know, has a team of lawyers working on a response to a section 155 notice where the ACCC might have concerns that they might not get the information that they need in response to a notice or the information that's actually available to them. I think they may still consider using using raids in those circumstances. It's certainly going to get a headline, isn't it, and get and get the attention of uh, the corporate sector when these things go on. Exactly, and and I do think, as as we spoke about before, there there is a strategic value to them in terms of getting people to consider what their best course of action might be. So, what can you do to prepare for all of this? Because you get obviously no notice of it on the day. Is there anything that companies can do in advance to ensure that they're ready for this moment should it occur? So look, I'll start off by saying obviously every rate is different and it's impossible to to prepare for every eventuality. But I, I do think that there are a number of quite simple steps that you can take just to prepare the organization to make sure that people know what to do on the day if a raid does happen. And particularly, I think those fall into three main categories. So the first is to identify your core dawn raid response team and make sure that those people are known to your front of house or reception team so that when the ACCC arrives at reception or at the front gate or the front desk, the people that are there know who to phone. In our experience, that's generally, you know, the general counsel and the deputy general counsel, for example. It's a good idea not to have that just be one person in case they're on leave or working from home or whatever the case may be. And then also someone in your IT team who has a good understanding of your IT architecture, where things sit, how particular things can be accessed. And then also your external legal team to the extent that that you're going to call them so that people know who they are and who the contact people are and can phone them almost straight away. I think the second aspect of it is to have a dawn rate policy or dawn rate protocol that doesn't have to be very detailed. It can be quite high level, but practical. The point of that is that you want anyone in your business who happens to be there on the day to be able to pick it up and know what to do and who to call. 
I had experience in one raid where the commission, it was in South Africa, decided to raid the entire leadership team and senior management was away at a retreat. So when the commission arrived, it was basically middle management and up. And thankfully, they did have a protocol and people knew what to do. It's important that that sets out just at a high principled level, you know, what your obligations are in terms of engaging with the HCCC, who you should call, what to expect, a few key points to look out for in terms of what the warrant should contain. And also just some tips on what to look out for in relation to privileged information if you are going to conduct the raid or allow the raid to continue without legal representation. The third key point that I would say is just making sure that that policy is pretty well socialized within the company so that people know where to look and that they know what to do. A key part of managing a raid effectively is not just your engagement with the HCCC, but also managing staff and how they react and and making sure that they know what their obligations are in terms of not destroying information about cooperating and granting access when when access is required, answering reasonable questions that the HCCC might ask, and also more practical things like not posting on social media, not informing people, even family members, that a raid is occurring. Obviously, I think it will be alarming and it is a confronting experience, but you want people to understand that it is possible that a raid might occur and, and what to do. All of those internal communications within the company after the raid begins become discoverable. So sending emails like, we're busted, isn't very helpful. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Your email should be asking for advice from your lawyers on what to do. (laughs) Indeed. And that's very important to remember under pressure, isn't it? How not to make a bad situation even more risky. Well, thank you so much, Tanya, for taking the time to share your experience with us today. That was terrific. That was a great interview. And very practical advice too. We also have some really good stuff in the Smart Council section on our website about what you should and shouldn't do if you find yourself in a raid. Yeah, it's actually pretty straightforward. I mean, you don't want to be making any complex legal arguments about what they can do when they're there. That can all be worked out later. You should check that the warrant is filled out properly and they've got the right address, that kind of thing. And definitely ask if you think a document might be out of scope and get them to keep documents separate if you think that they're privileged. But you shouldn't be trying to withhold documents or obstruct them at all, or even get into any big argument about anything on the day. Yes, well, that might be the hardest part if you're a lawyer. (laughs) Yeah, it might. But we'll put a link to that guide in the show notes so you can bookmark it for later. And Tanya mentioned that, of course, there haven't been any dawn raids anywhere in the world during the worst of the pandemic. But as things open up, we're likely to see more of them. And I'd imagine regulators want businesses to know that if they're not careful, they might get that knock on the door. Yeah, they do. And our friends at MLEX have reported from the American Bar Association's antitrust spring meeting that the theme from agencies in Europe and the US is really that they're back and they're using all the tools in the white collar crime toolkit, including raids on businesses and even on homes. Mm. Now, Matt, before we go, have you got your crystal ball back? And if so, what can you see? I did get it back from that independent repairer and it's as good as it ever was. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) We mentioned earlier that new ACCC chair Gina Kaskotlieb had given her first big address at the pre-ICN conference forum in Berlin, where she really focused on international cooperation between the regulators. She also gave a talk at a keynote session at the actual ICN conference itself. And we've got the audio. We do. Here's the new chair talking about the way the ACCC is prioritising the issues arising in its various digital platforms. There is a deluge of concerns and problems here. And so choosing which, from a consumer point of view, and we are rooted in the harm that the community is is facing, is an important part of our processes. Now, that resonates with what we heard before, doesn't it? Starting from the consumer and the community and working your way out. 
and focusing first on the things that impact them most directly. Yeah, I agree. And the ACCC is certainly one of the more effective and popular competition agencies around, thanks, I think, to the media presence of the ACCC chairs over the years. But if you ask most people what they know about the ACCC, I think a lot of them will say things like, you know, they're the reason why Apple has to replace their iPhone, even if it blows up the day after the official warranty has expired. Or why they got a refund on their travel bookings during the pandemic. That's right. And like we said last time, the ACCC takes a lot more cases and gets a lot more penalties under the consumer law than they do with the competition provisions. Last year, it was almost $110 million under the ACL and just $25 million for competition matters. And that's pretty typical over the last few years. And as we saw before, the highest ACL penalty ever is more than three times the highest penalty for a breach of the competition law. So what are you saying? They should call it the Australian Consumer and Competition Commission? Look, they could easily do a cut and paste on that logo. We may have to call it the ACCC instead of the ACCC, just to make things clear. Oh gosh, that's going to play hell with the automatic transcript. Okay, so maybe we'll leave that for now. But I think we'll continue to see the ACCC, or the ACCC, asking what the community wants from them, what affects consumers most directly and also explaining even more how their actions can help consumers. Indeed. And I've got to ask, Matt, how did your cryptic crossword go down? Have we had many submissions? Look, it hasn't brought down the server just yet. It's possible that I've slightly overestimated the number of people who are into both cryptic crosswords and competition law. It is kind of a niche within a niche. Within a niche, yes. Well, let's keep it in the show notes where you can find this and other rivetingly relevant links. And we've got some great guests still to come this season, including Jeremy Jose on greenwashing and electricity and Andrew Lowe on counting fish and regulating dynamic markets. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends to please do the crossword. <laughs> well, till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. 